Welcome to Compliance Beat, the podcast for compliance and ethics professionals. We provide practical insights and answer your questions about compliance and ethics. Together, we'll stay up to date on current trends so that your program stays effective. Brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Here's your host, Eric Moorhead. Today in our continuing series regarding third-party compliance and ethics, I want to talk about three third-party myths. Third-party compliance, particularly third-party due diligence, is an area that's received a lot of attention over the last few years. And I'm actually not going to talk about due diligence at all today because I think there are some more preliminary or threshold questions that come up pretty frequently that show that show up when I work with organizations, particularly organizations that don't traditionally have a third-party compliance program or third-party due diligence. So we'll table due diligence, which is a whole area rife with concern and issues on its own for another time. But today I want to talk about three sort of threshold questions, three areas where I see organizations often get tripped up, and I'm calling it third-party myths. The first of these is the idea that third-party compliance, compliance with partners, agents, and others is primarily an issue of anti-corruption, anti-bribery, or FCPA. That when you say third-party compliance, for many people, that immediately jumps to the question of bribery. But third-party compliance is a much, much bigger realm than just anti-corruption, anti-bribery, FCPA compliance. That's certainly the area that receives the most oxygen, and I've done another podcast about FCPA anti-bribery and the oxygen it consumes in our compliance environment these days. But I want you to kind of put that out of your mind. And when you hear third-party compliance from now on, I think a good way to kind of distance ourselves from this is to understand that third-party compliance is everything that you face as a organization that your employees face as representatives of your organization, third parties can face those same challenges, whether it be harassment, environmental compliance, health and safety compliance, trade compliance, any kind of compliance issue that you can face as an organization or that you can face through the actions of your employees, that can happen with a third party. Perfect example of this It's also in the foreign context, but it doesn't have anything to do with bribery, are the issues that Apple and other companies faced with their contract manufacturers over the last few years regarding uh, worker safety and labor conditions in these factories that they didn't own, that they didn't operate, that they had an arm's length relationship with because they were contracting the manufacturing, but they still found that they had tremendous liability. That's a perfect example of a lot of different issues, uh, labor issues, safety issues, that have nothing to do with bribery, have nothing to do with FCPA, but have everything to do with third-party compliance and third-party due diligence to make sure that your third parties are operating in the way that you expect. So that's the first myth, if you will, that I would like to see more and more compliance officers and those responsible for compliance try to disabuse themselves and their organizations of is that third-party partner agent compliance is only about bribery. Bribery may be a very important component depending on your operations and your risk profile. But remember, this all goes back to taking a risk-based approach to your program and looking very critically 
at the risks that are posed by the third parties you do business with. And it's very likely if you operate in certain parts of the world that bribery and corruption are going to be on that list, but there are going to probably be many other things too. And we can't afford to give those topics short shrift. The second myth that I see fairly frequently around third-party compliance is related to the first, and that's this notion that I am operating purely as a domestic organization. We don't have any operations overseas. We don't conduct business overseas. Therefore, I don't have third-party compliance concerns because I don't have anti-bribery, anti-foreign bribery concerns. I don't have FCPA concerns. So therefore, ergo, I don't have third-party compliance issues. Well, I would beg to differ. Even if you aren't operating overseas, the first thing you have to realize is maybe some of the third parties that you're contracting with for services or partners that you have business relationships with, maybe they're operating overseas. So just because you do not directly perceive that you have FCPA, foreign bribery, anti-corruption concerns, you may still have them via the relationships that your third party conducts on your behalf. Let me give you uh, an example that's probably fairly common these days. One of your third parties, one of the contractors you do business with is responsible for your database or for storing data in the cloud, as they say. Well, where is that cloud? Where are those data centers located? Are they located in countries where foreign bribery is potentially an issue? It could be. You may or may not know, depending on the due diligence and the compliance representations that have been made during the contracting process and during the relationship with that third party. So if you have somebody who is operating a data center where your data is stored on your behalf, where operations are technically occurring offshore, Maybe you do have bribery concerns. Maybe you have other concerns with regard to compliance. Certainly, privacy jumps to mind when you're talking about data. Where is the data stored? Where is the data being moved? Those are tremendous third-party risks these days with many organizations. So just because you're operating purely domestically, you have to ask questions about the third parties that you're doing business with that are providing services for you and perhaps handling your employee data or your customer data or proprietary data and where is it stored how is it handled how is it secured these are all serious third party compliance issues and they may or may not have anything to do with bribery they may and they may not but they certainly are third party compliance issues I'll give you another real-world example that doesn't have anything to do with data or technology, but also potentially could have something to do with foreign bribery. If you are working with a supplier that's supplying materials or labor or a product, and that product or those materials are provided from a country Let's just pick, you know, an Asian country, perhaps, or a country in the Middle East or in in Africa or, you know, even in Europe or North America or South America, wherever it might be. If products are being sourced, if services and materials are being sourced from another country on your behalf, do you know what that third party's compliance program is, particularly around issues like anti-bribery and anti-corruption. So while you may not directly perceive that you have direct compliance 
risks with regard to bribery, and you're operating entirely in the United States, you don't have a single customer that's outside the United States, that doesn't necessarily mean that you have no potential third-party compliance issues that touch on many of these issues, including foreign bribery. The last myth, if you will, about third-party compliance that I want to tackle today is the reliance on third-party compliance. The reliance on another organization, the sort of wishful thinking, if you will, that had happened in the past with many organizations with regard to their third parties program. And where this shows up and where this showed up more frequently was not with the small agent that's operating out of Dubai or with the the local shipping agent in Nigeria or, or some other location. I think that for a long time, there's been recognition that particularly smaller subcontractors or vendors or third parties or agents represented a danger zone. And there's been third party due diligence and compliance placed around those organizations for a long time. What had not happened as frequently until a few years ago, until a case called Panalpina, which those of you who are steeped in corruption are going to know very well, but those of you who haven't perceived a corruption risk ought to look up. Panalpina, if you do not know, is a rather large freight forwarder and logistics organization. This is not some small agent with a few a dozen employees or or only a couple employees. This is a multinational, large public organization. And Panalpina was engaged in, allegedly, engaged in acts that violated the FCPA and other statutes. These acts were in furtherance of providing services and working on behalf of many of their clients. Their clients also were large organizations. What those organizations leveled as a defense in the Panalpina case was, well, Panalpina is a large, proper organization, if you will. They have a compliance program. They have a legal department. We relied on them to make sure that they were complying with the law. And because they're sometimes, you know, as large or maybe even larger than the company that's relying on them to conduct the service, there was this notion that you could rely on them on their due diligence and their compliance program with regard to these compliance risks. Well, the resounding answer from the Department of Justice and SEC in that case, and in some cases that have followed is, no, you cannot. If you're doing business with a Fortune 100 company who is providing you services in countries where foreign bribery is a potential concern, you still have the responsibility as the person contracting with that third party to ensure to the best of your ability and do your own due diligence and ensure that they they are doing what they say they are doing. You still have a responsibility to investigate and, and conduct a significant due diligence depending on the appropriate risk level. So this was an important change. And for organizations that, again, haven't really faced foreign bribery or anti-corruption issues in the past, they may not be aware of this responsibility that they have. When you're contracting with a third party to, to act on your behalf, I think that the logic that is displayed in the panel PINA case can be applied to just about any potential compliance risk, be that environmental Contract manufacturing, you know, again, looking at the Apple case, uh, that situation that happened just a couple of years ago, any compliance risk that you face as an organization where a third party might be representing you is still going to 
appear and be significant, even if that third party that you're working with is, say, 50 times your size, you still might be on the hook if you don't ask the proper questions, do due diligence, and have satisfactory answers about what they're doing to combat the potential compliance risks that faces them in conducting the business on your behalf. One other thing, uh, which I think I actually just mentioned in the prior episode when we were talking about third-party codes of conduct or third-party or partner codes one thing that has happened since Panel Pina, it's ex- accelerated since Panel Pina, is this notion where many organizations, when they're in the contracting phase or beginning a relationship, will ask an organization to simply sign off on their code of conduct or certify to their code of conduct or their partner code of conduct and say, you do these things, you say that you do, here, cert- certify here. A word of caution, depending on what else you do, with regard to establishing that relationship and ensuring that there is compliance to the standards, the risks that you face, that may or may not be sufficient. I think that there is a danger that simply exchanging codes of conduct and signing a document that says that you're going to abide by those standards is perhaps not sufficient depending on the risk level and the circumstances of that relationship. So I would peer into what is being done during these engagements, particularly when you are dealing with organizations that may be large organizations, may be similar size to your organization or even larger than your organization. You still have a responsibility to go to those partners when they're operating on your behalf and ensuring that you have a comfort level that they're complying with the law. Now, obviously, some third parties are going to have far less risk and the relationship is going to have far less risk than others. It's not a one-size-fits-all, and we should all understand that. And that's why you have to do a risk assessment about these relationships in the beginning so that you have sort of a sliding scale or different groups that you group your third-party risk into. And for those with a more significant risk, operating in certain environments around the world, certain dollars spend, a criticality of the service or product that they're providing, those are going to demand more scrutiny. Sort of the example that you hear quite often is the company that's supplying your office supplies, even if they're supplying those office supplies in Nigeria or some other area where there is significant third-party risk concern, may not rise the level of criticality as to the service that they're providing to demand a higher level of scrutiny. But depending on the circumstances, and you have to evaluate these all individually, it may do. What is at the heart here is that no matter what the circumstances are, all of this requires a little bit more attention. The upshot this week is when you're contemplating your third-party risks, there are a few myths that you need to be aware of. The first is that third-party risk is all about FCPA and anti-corruption and anti-bribery. That's not true. Any kind of compliance risk that you face, that could be a third-party risk as well. The second is that third-party risks don't affect companies that operate purely domestically in the United States or whatever country you're operating in. That also may not be true depending on who you're doing business with and where their operations are. And lastly, when you're assessing your third-party risks, you can never rely on the compliance of a partner that you're doing business with, no matter how large or sophisticated they might seem. Today, we have three questions with Eric Feldman. Eric is Vice President and Managing Director at Affiliated Monitors, where he joined after retiring from the Central Intelligence Agency in 2011. Eric had a distinguished 32-year career with both the executive and legislative branches of the federal government. He has served in executive positions with the offices of Inspector General at the Department of Defense, 
the Defense Intelligence Agency, and the CIA, and was the longest-serving Inspector General of the National Reconnaissance Office, NRO, from 2003 to 2009. At the NRO, he presided over a highly successful procurement fraud prevention and detection program, widely recognized by the Department of Justice as a model throughout the federal government. His work involved the real-time assessment of corporate ethics and compliance programs at over 40 government contractors, including some of the world's largest corporations in the aerospace, military, and public contracting fields. During his tenure as Federal Inspector General, Eric worked with the Department of Justice in establishing programs to prevent and detect fraud in the federal acquisition programs. Eric is a 1995 graduate of the Federal Executive Institute and is both a certified fraud examiner, a certified inspector general, and certified compliance and ethics professional international. He is a member of the executive committee of the board of directors of the Association of Inspectors General and was the founding president of the California chapter. In 2015, he was appointed as co-chair of the American Bar Association Suspension and Debarment Committee. Could have a whole discussion just about suspension and debarment. Eric regularly speaks and teaches on topics of procurement, fraud detection and prevention, bribery and corruption, corporate business ethics and compliance, and managing an inspector general function. Welcome, Eric. Thank you, Eric. I appreciate you having me. Can you talk a little bit about your career journey? How did you end up in your current role? Sure. It was rather circuitous, and it is interesting. My entire career has really been centered around oversight, being a watchdog of federal programs, and now as a monitor, being called in as the independent oversight and reviewer of a company's compliance with agreements with regulators. So I started out with the Government Accountability Office right out of college. The co-op program that many of the universities have, I went to American University in D.C., had a great opportunity to work several semesters full-time with the GAO and worked in the international division of GAO, which dealt with foreign aid and USAID programs, economic assistance, foreign economic assistance, and then also military assistance. That was back in the time when there was a lot of aid going to various factions throughout Central America. So the work that I did there had a lot to do with the Contras in Nicaragua and a lot of the aid money that was going throughout the Central American countries that were all embroiled in various wars. So when I graduated AU, I was brought on full-time to work at GAO. Within a year or two, I had an offer to go work for GAO overseas in, in Panama. And I was part of that brigade of people that the Washington Post wrote about and called us combat accountants for the GAO. <laughs> Flying around in helicopters and asking people who were shooting guns how many bullets they just used. <laughs> uh, and, you know, when you're young and stupid, those are the kinds of things you do. Uh, and I then, while I was in an overseas mode and looking more and more at intelligence-related programs, I got recruited to go to what some people would call the dark side. Same kind of oversight, but within a more of an intelligence-focused area. So I moved over to DOD, was with the DOD IG for a brief period, and then became the first assistant IG for audit at the Defense Intelligence Agency. And many of those programs had an overlap in relationship to CIA, particularly in the human intelligence area. And 
it was the first time that anyone had ever audited or done reviews of some of these programs. Mm-hmm. These folks were just not used to having any oversight. So it was a very interesting phenomenon. And from there, I was recruited, as most people end up being, to go over to the CIA. And there I ran their audit staff for several years. And I was asked by the former director of Central Intelligence, George Tenet, to go over and be the inspector general of the National Reconnaissance Office. The NRO, a lot of people don't know, is the spy satellite agency that is part of the intelligence community, has a budget in the billions of dollars. 95% of which is executed on contract. So you can imagine what kind of mischief uh, that agency gets itself into. And in fact, the first time that agency ever became known publicly, because it was covert for many, many years, was when a congressional staffer drove by this huge construction site in Chantilly, and they were putting up what looked like a Taj Mahal of a of a building, and he started asking some questions, and it turned out that it was the super secret National Reconnaissance Office building a building. The only problem is they didn't have an appropriation to build a building, and they basically had been forward funding this by squirreling money out of their annual appropriations for several years, none of which were targeted toward military construction. <laughs> And then to finish the program, they took out a bank loan. You can imagine (laughs) a federal agency going to the local bank and taking out a bank loan under a false company name. Definite, Uh, definite need for oversight. (laughs) Exactly. And under, you know, that sort of uh, environment is where they created the office of inspector general. And within a few years, I was in the hot seat. It strikes me one follow-up to your journey and, and is also something that has interested me for ever since I've first started working in the compliance arena. The inspectors general have been around for a very long time. It's an established position that predates, you know, the last 15 or 20 years of, of development with many organizations, particularly private organizations around public companies, around compliance. If you had to distinguish one or two elements that are, because we talk a lot about the commonality between an IG role and a compliance role. What are one or two things that you think distinguish an IG role, other than obviously you're working for a state actor? What are some other things that you think are fundamentally different there? Because that's always interested me is more the differences than the, the similarities that we talk about a lot. Well, I think, and it's a great question because I'm always asked about the similarities, not the differences. And I think one of the things is a compliance officer has the ability in his or her domain to provide and demonstrate return on investment for what it is they're doing by preventing things from happening in the organization. And you can come up with metrics to do that. It's not easy, but you can come up with metrics on fraud and misconduct prevention. You can look at cases and hotlines and and trainings and communications, and you can even measure ethical culture within an organization. A lot of people don't think you can, but that's what I do now for a living, and so I know you can. In the federal government, the performance metric for an IG is very simple. Prosecutions, convictions, and recoveries. And the inspector general reports to his or her board of directors 
that board is essentially the United States Congress mm-hmm. and the Congressional Oversight Committees. And the CEO is essentially the agency director. What they want to see is how much money you save them. And because of the political nature of the board of directors for the United States government and the fact that there are constantly changing priorities that are not always based on fact, not always based on the singular goal of profitability like the private sector, they don't really care about prevention. And I don't say that in a flippant way. You know, everyone wants to prevent fraud because when it happens, it's costly. But on the federal government side, when you tell them that we have saved, we think that we've saved all kinds of money, there's no way to document. There's no way to identify it. And so most IGs shy away from that. Very few IGs do much in the prevention mode, even though the IG Act of 1978 says that the IGs shall prevent and detect fraud, waste, abuse, and mismanagement. Those are helpful distinctions, like you said. I I think we've particularly, from the compliance perspective, have looked at the similarities, but it's I think it's good to note the differences too. Let me ask you this. If you could go back in time and give your younger self one piece of advice before you got involved in putting together and evaluating, probably more importantly, evaluating compliance programs, what piece of advice do you think would be important to know? Well, being a, an old auditor, and coming from a GAO and an IG background, no one ever taught us about culture and what corporate culture or organizational culture is like and what that means. And to a lot of us, the term culture is a squishy social science thing that really doesn't have any bearing on the hard and fast role of an auditor in doing forensic accounting work, let's say. And I wish I knew more earlier because what I found now in doing all of the work I do with companies, both proactively and as an independent monitor that is appointed by some government regulator, the the number one thing that you have to look at is culture. And in, in my view, ethical culture is and I'm not the most original person in the world, and I'm always looking for original idea. And my original idea, I think it's somewhat original, is this. Ethical culture is a foundational internal control without which none of the other controls are going to be effective. I like that idea. I like that idea a lot. You know, I kind of feel like if the, you know, the Sentencing Commission added ethics to the hallmarks of the sentencing guidelines for an effective program back over a decade ago, but they never really defined it in a substantive way. And they may get around to it. They may get around to doing application notes or other guidance that kind of brings it into the field. But right now it's just a, and I feel this is, and maybe this is what you're trying to get at too. I feel with a lot of companies, when they talk about culture, it's kind of this broad amorphous thing that maybe surrounds it's like the force in star wars you know it surrounds us all it, it, you know and we understand it's important but we don't define it in, a, in a, any kind of specific or empirical way and, and and we really need to start doing that well i think you're right and when i'm in companies i like to use this example the guy who comes into a company goes through entry-level training where they have the parade of people that come in and talk about their different functions hr 
hopefully the ethics and compliance officer. They give you the code of conduct. They talk about what the company's about. They may talk a little bit about process. And then you go to your desk. And you go to your desk, and then you meet your immediate supervisor. And the immediate supervisor says, don't worry about all that stuff that they just told you for the last two or three days in your introductory training. This is how we really do things around here. Mm-hmm. Now, the, how we do things around here are never going to be articulated by one person in one day. It's going to be a process of absorption that that employee is going to see, feel, and hear. So if the guy sitting in the cubicle next to him or her is cheating a little bit on the travel expenses and maybe putting in some extra hours of overtime where they don't work it, and then they say to you, everybody does that here. This is, listen, we put in a lot of hours and the company really doesn't care. You know, you don't have to worry about the details of the timesheets. Everybody puts in a little, just don't overdo it. That becomes part of the culture. On the other hand, there could be a culture where from day one, the manager says, look, we are very focused on integrity in this company. And there's very little leeway and very little tolerance for any deviations from what the rules are because it's important to us as a company that we both appear and are ethical in everything we do in our business. Yes. That's a different culture. If you don't have the surrounding peer pressure and immediate supervisory pressure, then all of the rules in the nice glossy code of conduct are are not going to be terribly important. No. And, and, and I have a theory too, uh, even beyond the stated policy or the, you know, kind of the famous one that everybody talks about is the Enron code of conduct was beautiful and, and well-written, but, but stayed on the shelf and nobody ever paid any attention to it. The other theory I have, and I'm curious as to your thought about this, since you've peered into lots of companies that have had failures around culture issues is I feel like what you often see also is this big disconnect. My favorite recent one is with Wells Fargo. I always like to say, let's take John Stump at his word that he really believed there was a strong culture in the organization, and and he and the other executives spoke, you know, talked the talk, and and in their in their own in their own lives walked the walk. But there obviously was something else going on in the branches of Wells Fargo Bank with these discussions that you're talking about with managers is very different. And my theory is that it's actually worse for uh, uncovering fraud and abuse and, and misconduct if you've got a very positive, squeaky clean message coming from the executive management and then this this local reality of how things really work because the employee in that situation is going to be either A, these guys at the head office don't know what the hell's going on and aren't going to be of any help, or B, it's all just hypocrisy. And so that actually maybe makes it even worse than if those managers at the top of the organization said nothing at all. I think you're absolutely right, Eric. And, and what that points out, it points out a couple of interesting phenomenon that we've seen. First of all, when you go into a C-suite, very few CEOs can really tell you what the culture is like in their company. They can tell you what they want it to be. They can tell you what they hope it, it is, but they really don't know. 
They don't mm-hmm. have the kind of mechanisms in place to do a thorough assessment, which typically has to be done by a third party to, for any kind of objectivity, but they don't do that mm-hmm. because it's an investment that is not a burning platform. And almost every company that I've gone in after a disaster occurs and we start with the board and the CEO, the CEO will say something akin to, I don't know how this happened. I have had 65 and 70 year old men crying in their offices saying, how did this happen to my company? Mm -hmm. I send out relentless emails on ethics, relentless emails, because people think that the relentless emails are going to drive the culture and they don't. And, and and as you said, they don't tone at the top is an important concept, but it's overused and it's not an an inoculation. You need tone at the top, mood in the middle and buzz at the bottom. Mm -hmm. And if you don't pay attention to all three and make sure that, those things exist on a regular basis, then you're bound to head towards some kind of regulatory disaster at some point. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's happened over and over again. Eric, if you could peer into your compliance and ethics crystal ball for the next couple of years, what are a couple of trends that you see either that are already here and and starting to have an impact that are, or that are on the horizon that are going to be very important and that we're going to be talking about for a few years to come? Sure. That's a great question. You know, with the, the political environment, uh, a lot of people are trying to prognosticate what's going to happen with a new administration with new, new perspectives on many of the prosecutions and enforcement actions, et cetera. I like to think kind of beyond that because I don't think things will change all that much. I think that, you know, you may see more prosecutions and fewer deferred prosecution agreements. I think that you may see some easing of regulatory requirements, but then again, on the big ones that create an open, fair market, you're going to see increasing enforcement uh, of those rules. So I think we'll all average out. One of the things that I see is this trend toward holding individuals within companies accountable that was driven in part by the Yates memo. And the impact that I have heard in with my current clients and prospective clients on six people with Volkswagen and six executives being arrested, including the, the compliance officer, really is sending a chill. Mm-hmm. Because it's one thing to talk about money and having to dip into the corporate reserves to pay litigation fees. It's another thing to do the perp walk and nobody wants to do the perp walk. And, you know, it gets right down to it. People who are accountable or who should be accountable, the CFOs, the compliance officers, the business managers in each of these departments, typically you'll hear them say, I ain't going to jail for this company. And I think that that is driving good behavior. And that behavior isn't just, you know, I'm not going to lie on something, but it's, there's value in this ethics and compliance process. 
there's value in these reporting hotlines. The other thing we're seeing is an increase in organizations that are willing to spend the money to have a preemptive, proactive uh, assessment of their ethical culture and their ethics and compliance programs by a third party that's independent. These things, as you know, were a very hard sell a few years ago, and really only the most uh, forward-leaning companies or companies that had already been severely hit would get involved in them. And even most of, of the proactive assessments were, I would say, reactive proactivity. Something's burning, and they're trying to contain the fire rather than you know, make it a multiple-acre uh, brush fire. So today, we're getting more inquiries from companies that are just saying, you know, I'm a new compliance officer, and I just got here, and I'm a little uncomfortable, <laughs> and I need somebody to look at this thing and give me a roadmap on what you think I need to do. And then I can convince management to give me the resources to do it. I think, and, and Yates and the focus that Yates has brought to potential personal liability, I think drives the latter, right? It, it drives compliance officers. And I also, I would hope audit committees and directors are, are seeing expanded uh, liability, both criminal and civil, uh, well, not so much criminal so far, but we may see that at some point. Civil liability for the directors uh, is driving their interest in having somebody come in and provide them a roadmap or at least give them a report card as to how the staff is handling these important processes. That's a very good point, Derek. And we had a company that we were doing some work for. It was a proactive uh, situation. They, there had been some reports in a major city newspaper about some um, misconduct on the part of senior executives in this company. And they brought us in to not do an investigation, but to do an assessment of the culture and look at the ethics and compliance program and determine whether it was sufficient to surface issues. And we did. And interestingly, what we found is that the problem wasn't really with the company itself it was the board, and that the CEO was setting the board agendas. The CEO was bypassing, with the knowledge of the board, all of the board committees set up for compensation and the audit committee. They, the, the board did not have any requirement for the compliance officer to brief them. Very little intellectual curiosity in terms of the kinds of questions to ask when they have a meeting with senior people in the company, they just weren't curious. And therefore, it allowed the CEO to do what he wanted. And we ended up recommending a change, not only of the CEO, which was pretty obvious, but of the chairman of the board and the head of the audit committee. It's night and day from what it was maybe 15 years ago, but I think that there's, you're right in that it still takes a fire or some, some emergency for, for many organizations to get religion about the necessity of, of paying attention to culture and compliance programs. But hopefully uh, we won't be canaries in the coal mine for our entire careers. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sort of getting used to it. <laughs> well, Eric, I can't thank you enough for uh, spending a few minutes with us this afternoon and answering our three questions. Thank you so much, Eric. I appreciate it. 
Thanks for listening to Compliance Beat. Check out our website, compliancebeat.com. This podcast is brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Be sure to check us out at moorheadconsulting.com.